Good afternoon, Dr. Dang. Where I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Podcast Studios. Today, we're going to do another audio lecture. And remember that our arc of uh, mini lecture series is on fatty acids and fatty acid metabolism as it relates to biomedical and health. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to draw a larger picture around this because I want to make sure you understand the integration of obesity and associated lipotoxicity within the framework of the immune response. And so we're going to bring in some of that um, highly detailed discussion of both the innate and the acquired immune responses as there is an infection or there is some kind of stress response to the host and then relate that back regularly to lipid metabolism as an associated initial event that is usually chronic in nature because of the chronic disease uh, presentation that we uh, discover with obesity in humans but also as lipid modification and alterations in the cell and also in the system in general and the trafficking of lipids, for example, with lipoproteins and an alteration of inflammatory responses systematically in multiple regions in the body will ultimately lead to those disease states that we talked about last time. <laughs> Such things as cardiovascular disease, and cancer and autoimmune disease, three major um, high-level and high-profile diseases and disorders that relate to the morbidities of aging and ultimately leading to death. Okay, So that's the introduction I want to give. And now we're going to go into some pretty um, serious detail. So I want to talk to you about couple of things that are going to link up with chronic inflammation. Now, we talked last time about obesity and lipotoxicity. <clears throat> now, I want to tell you that chronic inflammatory diseases are actually the most significant cause of death worldwide in the 21st century. In fact, multiple health organizations have suggested that chronic diseases are really the greatest threat to human health. Not episodic infections, not the pandemics that you might consider, not even bacterial diseases, which can be quite ruthless and deadly, especially in the younger populations. For, for example, in Southeast Asia, Asia, South America, and Sub-Saharan Africa. No, as it turns out, it's the chronic diseases that cause most of the high morbidity and mortality in humans. So the prevalence of diseases associated with a chronic inflammation was actually anticipated to increase persistently, according to epidemiological data, for at least the next 30 to 50 years. This was first predicted around 2000. Right now, there are upwards of 130 to 140 million Americans that are living with chronic disease conditions. 
And over 60 million of that 135 or 140 million have more than one chronic disorder. Worldwide, the numbers range basically that three out of five people will die due to chronic inflammatory diseases. And these include things like stroke, respiratory diseases, heart disorders, cancer, and then the obesity-linked lipotoxicity, and of course, type 2 diabetes and all the sequelae that follow that disease. So the prevalence of some of the chronic inflammatory mediated diseases um, I'm going to describe now. Diabetes, for example. <clears throat> now, according to the American Diabetes Association, which should be a good source of information, somewhere around 30 million people, or about 10%, close to 10% of the American population, had diabetes by 2015. And it was indeed ranked as the seventh leading cause of death, just diabetes alone in the United States in 2016. Cardiovascular diseases, in line with the 2017 updated report from the American Heart Association, cardiovascular diseases, or CVDs, account for about one of every three deaths. So approximately 800,000 deaths in the United States in 2017 alone. Globally, CVDs, cardiovascular diseases, account for over 30% of all deaths. And coronary heart disease, or CHD, accounts for most of the deaths associated with CVD. That's followed by stroke, which is about one out of the 20 uh, deaths in the United States, and then heart failure, which takes up the rest. Now, Third, inflammatory. these are inflammatory diseases. Diabetes is inflammatory. Cardiovascular disease are inflammatory. Third, we can rank arthritis and joint diseases. Those affect approximately 350 million people worldwide. <laughs> Nearly 44 million people in the United States, and that's well over 20% of the population. The number is expected to exceed 60 million uh, in this decade, in the 2020s, nearly 2.1 million Americans suffer from rheumatoid arthritis alone, mostly in the elderly population. Next, we can mention allergies. They rank about sixth leading cause of chronic human disease in the U.S., and that and, the, and allergies affect more than 50 million Americans each year. Asthma affects more than 24 million in the U.S., including more than 6 million children. In 2015, when some data was uh, accumulated, 8.2% of adults and 8.4% of children were diagnosed alone just with hay fever. Yes, that's actually a biomedical disorder. Now, the last one I want to mention is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD. I know most of you have heard about this. Certainly, you in the biomedical community uh, probably treat this regularly. That COPD is actually the third most common cause of death in the United States, um, starting in about 2014 and leading up all the way until the pandemic years of 2020 and onward. 
and nearly 15.7 million Americans, that's 6.4% of total, reported to be diagnosed with COPD in 2015 alone, where we have the most accurate data. Now, most of the features of acute inflammation continue as the inflammation becomes chronic. So it goes from acute to chronic. And what kinds of features are we talking about? The expansion of blood vessels, that's vasodilation, increase in blood flow, capillary permeability, and the migration of multiple pools of the innate immune cells known as neutrophils, which can generate when they congregate into neutrophil extracellular traps or nets, which can then associate around infection sites or around inflammation sites, leading to a hyperimmune response in that locus. So this occurs in infected tissue and through the capillary wall. Now that response, as you know from previous lectures, is diapedesis, right? When things move through the capillary wall, it's called diapedesis. Now, the composition of the white blood cells changes over time, of course, during the inflammatory process. And the macrophages and lymphocytes begin to replace, uh, because I told you about neutrophil degradation, um, those short-lived neutrophils, and to some extent also eosinophils and basophils. Eventually, hallmarks of chronic inflammation are the infiltration of the primary inflammatory cells. Those include the macrophages and all the lymphocytes and indeed plasma cells, which are mature antibody-producing B cells. All of that can now coexist in the tissue site where the inflammatory response is at its um, highest level. That will then generate the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, growth factors, which will continue to stimulate cells to produce more cytokines, enzymes like extracellular matrix, metallomatrix proteases, which will contribute to the progression of tissue damage and secondary repair, including, as I mentioned last lecture, fibrosis and granuloma formation. So in response to foreign or self-antigens, both of which can induce this response, obviously, the tissue immune cells, such as macrophages and dendritic cells, both of which can present antigen, remember, will release interleukin-1 and TNF-alpha, tumor necrosis factor alpha, both those are pro-inflammatory cytokines. Now, those cytokines will induce directly injury site endothelial cells to release proteins called selectins and integrins, which will then stimulate, yeah, chemotaxis and diapedesis, right? And that's going to then allow for the incoming circulating leukocytes into the tissue bed. Now, in addition to the recruitment of the leukocytes, tissue-based macrophages and indeed dendritic cells will play a significant role in clearing of the antigen by outright phagocytosis. Then you'll get a release of cytokines and then serving as antigen-presenting cells, these dendritic cells and macrophages will present antigen 
to now the accumulating lymphocytes, particularly T lymphocytes, particularly the T effector cells, right? Th1, Th2, Th17, that's correct. Now, once the circulating leukocytes, those are in the innate immune cells, <clears throat> enter the local injury site, they become activated by various populations of cytokines and chemokines, which of course are also involved in gradient accumulation of these cells, right? And those cytokines and chemokines are going to be regularly expressed and secreted by the macrophages and dendritic cells that are also at the same time presenting their antigen to T lymphocytes. Now on activation, the leukocytes will release more cytokines and more mediators of inflammation. For example, pro-inflammatory eicosanoids, right? Such things as the prostaglandins. Neutrophils are, as I said, the initial innate immune cells, and they're the most predominant in that acute phase of inflammation. <laughs> That's because neutrophils contain granules, which are rich in lysozyme, matrix metalloproteases, myeloperoxidases. All of this gets released onto the foreign or self-antigen, leading to its destruction. Then the neutrophils destroy the antigen by phagocytosis and release reactive oxygen and cytokines. And those cytokines are the nor normal uh, suspects. Interleukin-1-beta, interleukin-6, and TNF-alpha, all very, very powerful pro-inflammatory cytokines. So the lymphocytes now, including the T lymphocytes and the B lymphocytes, are the next phase of this hyperimmune response. <clears throat> they play a crucial role in mediating inflammation by many complex mechanisms that we talked about in our aging lectures. Of course, that the mechanisms include the secretion of cytokines, co-stimulation of lymphocytes, and the production with the B cells and plasma cells of IgG and other immunoglobulin, otherwise known as antibodies. And then the entire immune complexes that can be generated in circulation, including with complement, right? So you have also circulating platelets, and they're going to play a role in inflammation because they're going to aggregate platelets. You're going to have thrombus formation. You're going to have continued degranulation which will further release chemokines and all those inflammatory mediators we talked about, including the enzymes, right? The matrix metalloproteases, et cetera. Now I want to um, point uh, to um, our discussion, a paper that was published in Nature um, Review Gastroenterology and Hepatology. This paper was published in late 2019. And the paper was about a disorder known as primary biliary cholangitis, or PBC. This is indeed an inflammatory and cholestatic liver disease. PBC occurrence and progression and indeed eventual etiology involve genetic components, immunoepigenetic and environmental, what I call dialectical, event ontological, paradigmatic interactions. That means they were going to involve nuclear receptor, 
transcription factor-mediated alterations in gene expression, both at the level of controlling promoters and both cis and transacting elements in the chromatin remodeling, chromatin retailering process, but also because of methylation, acetylation, et cetera, including, I should point out, small interfering RNA production that will then bring on the legion of epigenetic responses. You then get a clinical manifestation of primary biliary cholangitis, PBC, which is going to be a bile acid-induced inflammatory response and fibrosis. Again, this is in a cholestatic liver. All of that is paradigmatic for the disease. So the management of patient symptoms, particularly pruritus, is going to be the first goal for the um, clinician. And that's reflected in the development of a rational therapy, a pharmacotherapy typically, with an apical sodium-dependent bile acid transporter inhibitor, typically what's the first line of defense for PBC. Now, this is all going directly back to lipids and fatty acids. If you don't already understand this, you soon will. Now, another paper published in 2019 was in Frontiers in Immunology, and they again talked about PBC-associated immune responses and involving a protein called galactin-3. And galactin-3 plays a very important role in PBC pathogenesis. In fact, autoimmune cholangitis can be induced in animal models like the murine model by an injection of a bacterium called N-aromaticovorans. So liver infiltrates of N-aromaticovorans infected mice had elevated pro-inflammatory macrophages, those are the type 1, M1, dendritic cells, acting as antigen-presenting cells, and also as production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, natural killer cells, natural killer T lymphocytes, and then T effector cell lineages. So galactin-3 deletion in treatment with a GAL-3 inhibitor was shown to reduce the inflammatory mononuclear cell infiltrate and the expression of something called the NLRP3 inflammasome. Now, NLR proteins start and then regulate the immune response to injury, to various toxins, and of course, invasions by microorganisms. And they do this because they engage components of the immune system, these NLR proteins. The NLR protein cryopyrin, for example, recognizes bacterial particles, such as cell wall fragments and membrane fragments. But also cryopyrin will recognize chemicals like asbestos and silica inorganic and uric acid crystals, such as gout, and compounds that are otherwise generated by injured cells, for example, pro-inflammatory cytokines and eicosanoids. Now, once activated, groups of these NLR proteins, specifically the cryopyrons, assemble themselves along an axis with other proteins into structures now we're going to call the inflammasome. That will obviously be involved in the generation and processing of inflammation, sense restrictor. 
So inflammation occurs when the immune system sends signaling molecules as well as leukocytes and lymphocytes to a site of injury or a disease infection to fight microbial invaders and essentially to facilitate at the same time tissue repair. So I'm going to go back (laughs) to a paper published back in 2004, which is going to talk about this Novosphingobium aromatisivorans as a potential initiator of primary biliary cirrhosis. That's right, cirrhosis of the liver. Okay, so this goes way back to 2004. And the reason we're going here is to give you the full understanding of this disease and when it was when its etiology was first being discovered and then examined in great detail. So that's why I'm taking you back to that particular time signature, right? All right. So <clears throat> primary biliary cirrhosis, PBC, is characterized by T-cell mediated destruction of the bile duct epithelium. And of course, that lines the small intrahepatic bile duct. The host targets of activated T lymphocytes are indeed the dihydrolipoamide acetyltransferase components of the two oxoacetyhydrogenases, okay, that we talk about frequently in general biochemistry. So enzymes like pyruvate dehydrogenase are the best known of these. Now, these are going to be targets of activated T lymphocytes. You understand how you can then generate this autoimmune disorder, obviously. So the data suggested back in 2004 that you have microorganism associated to initiate the onset of primary biliary cirrhosis. And this happens to be this uh, gram-negative aerobic bacterium uh, with the genus Novosphingobium, okay? And I told you the species that they were looking at was the Aromatosivorans, right? Now, this N. Aromatosivorans, or N.A., it's a bacterium, remember, it's an aerobic gram-negative bacterium, will subvert self-tolerance in two ways. First of all, by molecular mimicry, due to subclinical infections initially, and secondarily by the metabolism of xenobiotics that will, of course, be present in the infection, right, in the infection court, I should say. So besides this, you will find this bacterium, I must tell you, worldwide, because it's in soil, it's in pond water, and it's in coastal plain sediments. It's easy to pick up. And it has this pyruvate decarboxylase E2-like protein. Remember, that's going to be dehydrolipoamide acetyltransferase. You recall your general biochemistry, and we talked about PDC as a component of the PDH complex, pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. I know you're, it's, it's coming back into your mind now as I bring it forward, the E2 enzyme of that complex. It turns out PDC E2s, have a higher degree of homology with the immunodominant region of human PDCE2, just like any 
of the ones found in bacteria. Okay. So this bacterium that induces primary biliary cirrhosis then has the same basically epitopes on its version of PDCE2. Okay. Remember this bacterium is N aromat or aromatosivorans. And what it does, because of this similarity with epitopes of its PDCE2 with host, it will subvert self-tolerance, right? And so it does so by molecular mimicry, right? So in the initial studies, investigators found that antibodies to that bacterium, that gram-positive, uh, that gram-negative bacteria, aerobic gram-negative bacteria, were found in 77 of the 77 PBC patients that they were studying way back in 2004. This, these were patients from Milano, Italy. And they had antibodies, yep, to pyruvate carboxylase E2. Remember, that's the hydrolipoamide acetyltransferase. Uh, and that titers to the bacterium, remember, the same protein was similar to the human protein. Okay, So a direct correlation of increasing titer of the bacterium in association with this pyruvate carboxylase E2 enzyme. The, 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 indeed, because of high sequence similarity at the amino acid level, and therefore secondary and tertiary level of the protein folding patterns, um, inducing this autoimmune response. Okay. So again, this novo sphingobium is a sphingomonas. And the one that they were studying back in 2004 was a DSM 12444 or 444. And it is in fact an alpha proteobacterium for those of you who are microbiologists in the audience. It's gram-negative, non-spore-forming, it's a rod, and it displays a single polar flagellum when it is motile, and it is actually obligate aerobe. So unlike typical gram-negative bacteria, it doesn't possess the LPS, the lipopolysaccharide, but rather it has a unique glycosphingolipid, hence its name, which is usually a membrane component, yeah, of eukaryotic cells. So now you've got another potential antigen carrying out molecular mimicry with the human membrane lipid, okay? So now you're beginning to understand how this can happen very, very easily from a bacterial infection, right? So the role of these sphingosine lipids is that they're proposed to be important for the bacterium for colonization of the eukaryotic cell lineage. But not just in animals, not just in mammals, but those same sphingosine lipids that are similar to sphingosine lipids you find in mammals can also be found in higher plants and even marine organisms, microorganisms. So, Key feature here, since ceramide can be generated from sphingomyelin, and it's this lipid that's linked to the inflammation and subsequent tissue degeneration, another mechanism of this sphingomonas bacteria in primary biliary cirrhosis could be outright lipid signaling, not just the autoimmune molecular mimicry that's firing up because we know 
that ceramide can induce multiple composite mechanisms for programmed cell death. Okay. Some of which, at least two of which that I can think of right away, ferritosis and necrotosis, can lead to a hyperinflammatory response. <clears throat> now, one more thing. Paper published in Infection and Immunity in 2013 talked about Staph aureus. Now, we mentioned this a couple of lectures ago when we were talking about avirulence. Staph aureus, which of course is a bacterium associated with skin and soft tissue infections. And the severity of that infection can range from minor conditions, which include things like folliculitis and cellulitis and impetigo, to more severe, that's right, particularly in the hospital setting, surgical site infections or SSIs. So SRES is linked to many hospital-associated SSIs, and that can lead to bacteremia, endocarditis, and at the molecular level, the submolecular level, it's particularly a gene expression, an epigenetic reprogramming autoimmune inflammatory disease. So the treatment of SSIs, remember those are surgical site infections, has led to antibiotic resistance, because a lot of antibiotics are thrown at this after surgery, or sometimes pre-op before surgery, and particularly among hospital strains of SRES. That yields the high prevalence infections in surgical uh, sectioned patients and the concomitant reduced efficacy of antibiotics, both in the clinical setting and then external to it. So I'm going to look at my time here. Yeah, I've got to stop. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry. Just when it was getting interesting, right? Authentic Biochemistry on the 5th of February saying bye for now and good evening.